We are continuing in 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 16. And we've been there for, I don't know, only about a week now, I guess. Uh, and last Sunday, we looked at verses 1 to 4, where Paul described the distribution of a special offering the Gentile churches were collecting for the impoverished believers at the Jerusalem church. This compelled him to lay out a more detailed itinerary for his impending visit to Corinth, along with information regarding the plans of Timothy and Apollos in the very next section. So in verses 1 to 4, Paul talks about an offering that he's been, he wants these churches to collect, that he can deliver, and this moves him to discuss in more detail what it'll be like when he heads out there to pick up this offering. That's what's in the next section, so to speak. Interestingly, Paul does include a travelogue toward the end of some of his letters. Uh, and in these travelogues that are in some of these letters, he often describes his travel plans and or the travel plans of others. And uh, I read that in a commentary but they didn't tie it to any of his letters. They just said it's common for him to do that. Well, that's never a sufficient point for me. I want to know what letters he does it in. So that led to me researching and going to the end of every letter that he wrote and trying to figure out which ones he did it in. And um, after about an hour's worth of work on that, I gave up. But I did find travelogues, obviously, here in 1 Corinthians. I found one in Ephesians. I found one in Colossians and Titus and Philemon. So those epistles from Paul all have some form of travelogue, an interesting detail. Now, the thing that's really interesting about the very next section in, in chapter 16 is it, it doesn't contain any direct teachings. It's not big on doctrine. <laughs> There's not like a, a, a list of exhortations here. There's really, it's just him describing his travel plans and that of others. Um, so usually when you enter into any section in, in this epistle, at least previously, there's, there's always some kind of admonishment, some kind of teaching, some kind of exhortation. And we really don't see that here Instead of it being a set of teachings in this particular section, it's more of just an explanation regarding his travel stuff. And um, the, the whole context of the next section, it has to do with Christian service. Like in the previous section, it was about Christian giving. And, and now, with, it doesn't have any direct teachings, but what he speaks of still has to do with Christian service which is something that all Christians are called to do. And he made this very clear in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, the previous section or previous chapter. In fact, I've been reading a wonderful little book by a Puritan divine named Henry Scogel, and it's called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And it's, he wrote this little book to a friend that he knew who was disenfranchised by religion and tired of religion. And this friend kind of saw religion as something that people are just merely doing, but it's really dead at its core and 
he didn't see any value in religion. And Skogel writes to him this, it's really a letter to him. And it, he talks about how what true religion is, is it is the life of God in a, in a person, in a sinner. God gives this person life and takes up residency in this person, right, through the Holy Spirit. And so true religion is the life of God in the soul of man. It's not just a list of things we do. And that's the whole premise and purpose of the book. And there's a wonderful little quote that I found in it that has to do with service. And he's, he's speaking of Jesus. And I thought it was pertinent to what we're talking about today. But here's the quote. It says, Jesus spared no pains while he was about his father's business, but took infinite pleasure and satisfaction in the performance of it. In other words, Jesus just loved to serve others. In the service of others, he was serving his father. And he absolutely loved it and was completely satisfied by it. And, and the thought here is that every Christian should be engaged in service. Especially when we consider that, you know, if Jesus is the captain, right, so to speak, and this is what Hebrews 2.10 says, it, it calls Jesus our captain. He uses militaristic terms. If he's our commander, if he is our captain, shouldn't we, his soldiers, 2 Timothy 2.3, follow his lead and spare no pains when it comes to making disciples and spreading the gospel? Shouldn't we be like him in that we spare no pains in our service to the Lord? It's the idea, and it's the concept and kind of purpose of this text that doesn't really have any clear teaching. The absence of any direct teachings in this text that we're going to look at this morning, or at least begin to look at, because it goes all the way through to verse 12, and we're not going to get that far today, but the absence of any direct teachings in our text does not mean that there is nothing to be learned, nothing to be gleaned, nothing to be applied. On the contrary, we will see implied principles we can learn and apply as we, the people of God, as we are submissive to our captain as his soldiers, as we aim to serve our captain, our Lord. So if you could, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians, obviously chapter 16. We're just going to focus on the whole text is all the way through verse 12, but we're just going to focus on verses 5 to 8 today. And... In totality, between today and Lord willing, next week, I'll present six principles for effective Christian service. Three today and, Lord willing, three this coming Sunday. We need to pray for God's help as we begin to engage the text. Bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you for your word and in advance, and we thank you for all the ways that we've been able to worship you thus far, and now we commit ourselves to worshiping you through your word, and we pray that you make your word clear to us and the principles that we will find here, and not just clear, but applicable, and that you would give us through the Spirit a actual desire to do them and the gumption to do them, and not just a desire, but that we would do them. We were talking in our Sunday school class earlier about how Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And so uh, the, the, the number one way that we show love for you is through obedience. And so we want to not just hear this word, we want to obey it and do it. So make these principles clear to us, put handles on them so we can take them with us and help us to live them out. 
And uh, we pray that you receive all the glory this morning through this teaching and all that we do. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So let's pick up where we left off last Sunday and look at our first or the first principle that I see in the text. This is a very, uh, even though there's not any direct teachings, it's still very practical and clear. And the first principle is the principle of vision. And we see this in verse 5. To, to be a, um, uh, you know, to be an effective servant of the Lord, you need to have some level or a vision, some type of vision. And when I say this, I'm not talking about visions, I'm talking about vision. Paul says it like this in verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. So you can just stop there. Paul demonstrates the principle of vision by how he looked ahead and made plans to visit the Corinthians after he goes through Macedonia, which is where there were several churches. You had the Philippian church there. You had the Thessalonican church there. You had the Berean churches there. Macedonia is a province where there were many churches. And as we can see as he lays out his vision for the Corinthians, his vision is, I will come to you after I visit these churches. To be effective in Christian service, a faithful servant must have vision. Must have vision. He or she looks ahead with a, a sense of urgency. It's like they, they're kind of looking down the road. They're pondering where the Lord might lead them or they're pondering things that they're aware of that they might be able to address and deal with down the road. This is vision. There's a proverb that speaks of this in a way, but I think it's mishandled on most, in most cases. And it, it says, for my people perish for lack of vision. And in that context, it has to do with prophetic vision, which is the word of God. What the proverb is saying is that my people perish where there is no prophetic vision, where there is no teaching. Why? Because man shall not live by bread alone. So vision is mentioned in that text, but it's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is pondering, praying, and planning for the future. That's what it means to develop and have vision. We see right here in the text that Paul had vision because he's thinking ahead and planning prayerfully. Now, I think this is an area where we as a church can truly improve. I think it's easy for the elders and I and for all of us to just get into a particular mode and, 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 and the mode is involved and we have all these responsibilities and things we have to do. So we're in this mode of just meeting all these demands and, and, and trying to fulfill all these responsibilities that reset every week for me. And I think you can get caught up in that and, and you're not really a visionary at that point. You're not developing thoughts and plans for the future. You're just operating. And I think this is one of the things that's hurt us as a church. Have you ever asked yourself why maybe our church never exceeds more than 
60, 70 people, 100. And I mean, now this, this might not be directly connected to a lack of vision, but it certainly could be because even Jesus had vision. Go make disciples. When you are in the business of going and making disciples, your church numbers will increase because you are bringing disciples, new disciples into the church through your evangelism. So I think this is one of the things that's hurt us, that at many times we've just gotten in this mode of operating and functioning and meeting the daily demands rather than doing that, which is a responsibility, and it is obviously service to God, and God is pleased with that, but how often are we actually thinking ahead? How often are we actually pondering other needs in our community other than just making disciples of this group or just building up this body. We lack vision in the area of reach, I think. And, you know, if, if somebody's at fault, then it's probably me and the elders. And, you know, of course, we'll blame it on the new deacons. <laughs> the deacons you gave me, Lord. It's the deacons you gave me. But... This is something, it's, there's an area of conviction for me. This is an area of conviction for me. I don't want to say that our lack of thinking forward or ahead has caused an, the absence of real numerical growth. We do grow numerically, one, two at a time here and there. Usually at the time that we're, we've picked up a couple of people, we have you know, more leave. So I mean, it's just it's the pattern. And I think what we can do is we can become kind of fatalistic in our thinking in that we say, God is sovereign, he brings whomever he wants, and we're going to leave it at that and do nothing about it. Well, that's not, we don't have vision here. I think God has a global vision to bring all his people in. And maybe we should develop that and have that and tease that and entertain that and plan for that. But So I, this is a, a really touching, important area for me. And quite frankly, when I think about it, it's a little intimidating because sometimes you develop a vision, and then now you develop a plan to carry it out, and the plan is fraught with compromises and things that you think you can do to bring people here, which is not something we want to do. We don't want to compromise the truth. We don't want our vision to put us in a situation where we have to make compromises. We want to obey the word holistically across the board, and that's a challenge, but that's what we want to do. I don't think that when we say we have vision or we're working on vision for the church that we're challenging or trying to negate the sovereignty of God. I think it means we're trying to find his will in a greater propensity and way in reaching our community. So it is an area that, that I'm concerned about. And when I think about it, it's intimidating. I don't even know how to fix that. Hey, I know how to do a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, I've got a pretty large wheelhouse, a creative wheelhouse. I have an art background and all sorts of stuff. It wouldn't be a problem getting people here. But I know that if I were to employ my entire wheelhouse in doing that, there would be so many, it wouldn't be God's way. We would be dangling power bait in front of trout. And we don't want to do that. We want to stick to the gospel and stick to the means that God has given us. But I think that includes some level of vision and thinking through things. We don't need to, you know, in our vision, well, let's come up with some gimmicks that'll bring people here. Well, that's what other churches do. We don't want to do that. We're not gimmicky, but 
we, we still need to have some vision here somehow. So somehow we've got to have vision and we've got to obey the scripture. And Paul, we see some expression of vision here. He's going to go here and he's going to do this and, you know, he's, he has plans. And there's other people in scripture where we see that they had vision. I mean, probably one of the best examples would be Nehemiah. You're familiar with him, the great rebuilder of Jerusalem and the wall. When he came to King Artaxerxes, he was the Persian king in power and the most powerful nation in the world. And Nehemiah, who's a, just a Hebrew peon, goes to him. He goes to him for permission to go to Jerusalem. He goes to the king. He's, you know, he, he wants permission to go back to Jerusalem to do some work. And he had a specific purpose and plan in mind. In other words, he's sitting under the authority of this pagan king, so to speak, in, in, a, in a type of captivity. And, and now the Israelites are returning and the city's bombed and blasted and it has no walls and all this. But he's sitting and he's pondering these things and he's developing a vision for him going back and rebuilding. But, but long before Nehemiah even goes to Artaxerxes, he already has an idea and a vision of what the Lord would have him do there. That takes prayer, that takes thought, that might take conversation with other trustworthy godly men. You don't just go to the king and start making suggestions. You go with a vision and then you cast vision. He does this. He had already prayed earnestly and, and penitently that God would allow him to do this work and that God would open the king's heart and, and give him permission this is what he expects and hopes for and prays for, that the Lord would grant these things. It's all tied to his vision. He goes to the king and he explains to the king that Jerusalem's great need for its walls and its gates to be rebuilt. He's talking to the king about things he's already planning for and envisioning. And when Nehemiah's initial request was granted, he made additional pleas in order to secure the timber and other materials he knew he would need. It's Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, verse 8. I mean, this is amazing. The guy's vision is, I need to go to a king who probably doesn't care much about my city, but I need to go to him and ask him for permission. This is in his vision, not something he sees, something he's planning. And he, I need to go to this pagan king and ask him if I can go do this. And then I need to ask him if he'll supply all our needs to do it. <laughs> That's quite a vision. That's a I'm trusting in God vision, right? Not only do I need to get permission, I need to get him to fund this. <laughs> what you see in Nehemiah isn't just vision, but tremendous faith because faith is what empowers and brings vision if you don't have much faith you're not going to be thinking ahead and thinking of what god might or could do this was a man of great faith and a man of great vision nehemiah because of vision and careful planning his success as the rebuilder of jerusalem began long before he left persia So Nehemiah is a, a wonderful example of vision. We see another excellent example in a brother by the name of William Carey, great missionary, late 1700s, while working as a cobbler. Now, that doesn't mean he 
focused on making peach cobbler, which would be a good job because I love it, especially Elsa's peach cobbler. Wow. You take one bite of that and you are saved. A cobbler is someone who works on shoes, who fixes shoes. You see, back then, shoes were very expensive for people, and you didn't just throw them out and go get another pair. They were made of material that would last a lifetime, but you had to upkeep it. And he, he took a job as a cobbler and repaired shoes. He lived in Piddington, North Hampshire, England. And while he was a cobbler, he was moved by the great spiritual needs of other parts of the world. You know, at this time, the British Empire was spread far and wide. It was the ruling party in India and other places. And when he considered where the, the Brits had colonized and settled, he thought, man, in these places, there's unbelievable spiritual needs and physical needs. And these countries that we've settled in are impoverished and people are starving and they're under false religion. He is fixing shoes. And he's not thinking about how perfectly to fix the shoe per se, but I really wonder what maybe the Lord could do in India. There weren't any missionaries or much missionaries going there with the gospel. And so as he's cobbling, he's developing vision and considering things, thinking through stuff. He thought and he prayed and he wept about how the Lord could use him to meet some of those needs, maybe in India or in other places. He sensed that the Lord was leading him to go to India to share the gospel with Hindus. When he finally arrived, which was later, I mean, he couldn't get any funding or any support anywhere to go do this thing. And finally, God made a way. But when he arrived there, he didn't sit down and develop a vision for doing the work. He showed up with a vision for the work and went right to work before he ever stepped foot in India. He already knew what the Lord wanted him to do. He was ready to begin the work. And if you know anything about Kerry, God used him to make outstanding contributions through teaching and preaching and translation. And, you know, he printed much Christian literature there. He actually translated the Bible into the main languages in India at the time, like Bengali and Sanskrit and other dialects and languages. This guy... When this guy went down there, he probably didn't have the full sense of what he would be doing. I'm sure he prayed as he was there and working and probably saying to the Lord at times, what is the next thing that you want me to endeavor? But he's preaching and teaching and making disciples and countering Hinduism with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which obliterates false religion, and saves men and women. And now he's, trans he's a smart guy. He's translating the Old Testament and the New Testament into the languages of the people there so they can read and study the word for themselves. This is insane. Because he had vision and prayed and planned and prepared, he was ready when the opportunity came. And today, William Carey is hailed as the father of modern missions. Hmm. I think God's vision for William Carey was much bigger than William Carey's vision for himself. No man ever dreams of doing such grand works. Yet God 
blesses them and enables them to do such grand works. Hey, I've heard MacArthur comment on this from time and time again. I never dreamed that we would have a church this size with this kind of reach and getting the truth out there. It's astounding. And God's vision as illustrated and laid out and revealed in Scripture is always more grand than ours. It's such a privilege to be invited into it at times. But J-Max says this, the Lord's worker must have a vision for the future. The Christian who is motivated and consumed by God's love will see needs that are not yet filled and opportunities that are not yet met. He cannot help planning ahead, looking for more ways to serve and for more doors to open. That's an excellent explanation as to what it means to have vision as a servant of Christ. You're a nursery overseer. You are thinking about the future for your nursery ministry. You oversee preaching. You're thinking about that. Ecclesiastes. Maybe that's where we'll go. Some level of vision there. Your facilities deacon, so to speak, and you're thinking about that and improvements that can be made around here. Uh, it's, this, this is what vision is. It is to be thinking beyond, and it doesn't have to be 20 years down the road. I hate that when you go to an employer and they're like, where do you see yourself in five years? I'm like, hopefully still employed here. That's pretty good vision, Phil. It's not a vision. The vision is I'm going to be the CEO of this company. Well, right now you're the janitor, so um, have you thought about enrolling in some classes? You know, yeah, I have. That's vision. You can apply this principle to your daily life. You know, I was a fry cook at Long John Silver's. I had a greater vision than that when I started out. Okay? I wanted to work in construction. Every time I dropped fish in the vat, I'm like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> and then I was working in construction. And then I was like, I need to go back to dropping fish in the vat. This is way harder work. I was way better as a hydro ceramic engineer dishwasher. <laughs> My buddy Tony used to always say that. He's, I started out as an engineer. Really? Hydroceramic. I was like, dude, did you work at like Lockheed Martin or something? He goes, no, I worked at McDonald's. I was like, oh, <laughs> didn't know they had dishes to wash. Fission. We should have some vision or at least be thinking about that. That's the first principle. Paul has it. I'm going to come to you after I go here, here, and here. Second principle, the principle of flexibility, verse 6. This is huge as well. Paul says it like this, And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Paul demonstrates the principle of flexibility by how he said or used the words perhaps and the word even and the word wherever. Those words denote flexibility. Like he's saying, I have a plan, but I'm flexible enough to make adjustments if the Lord redirects me. Flexibility. This is one of the ones that really gets us in trouble because sometimes we're very inflexible. We don't want to bend or adjust. We keep saying, well, God opened the door. Instead of saying he opened a different door. 
Flexibility is key to being a, an effective servant of the Lord. You have to be flexible. Paul had a, a good purpose in mind and a strong personal desire to visit Corinth after passing through Macedonia. There's the vision, but he did not want to become presumptuous nor inflexible if the Lord changed his plans. You see, sometimes what happens is that as we're pondering the future and things that we think the Lord might want us to do and we're developing vision and now we're developing a plan and now we seek to execute it, maybe we get into it for a little while and things are rolling and then all of a sudden things really aren't quite working out like we thought because God had something in addition to that or something different from that all along. And if you're inflexible, what happens? You get discouraged. You start blaming God. Well, you open the door. Yeah, but I also changed it and opened this door. Well, yeah, but that's not acceptable because I put all my time, talent, and treasure into this. Yeah, inflexibility can breed and bring about disenchantment, dis disenfranchisement, uh, bitterness. You have to be flexible. You have to be flexible when you're dealing with people coming in and out of your ministry that you oversee or that you serve in. Well, I just want things done my way. Well, that's not, a f that's not flexibility. What if somebody comes in and they have better ideas than you? We can't have that. Out of here. Every Christian ought to be flexible enough to, to, to want people that are better than them at doing things to come in and serve alongside of them rather than I have to be the alpha. There's a zillion ways that flexibility is required. We ought to have vision and a plan, no doubt, but we've got to be flexible since we know God is sovereign and everything we do is subject to divine revision. God is the one. We make our plans, amen, but God directs the steps. And sometimes those steps take us as far away as you could possibly get from those plans. Amen? You set something up and then went to do it, and it's like, this ain't happening. Only to find out and to reflect later on how much better the new plan from God was. His ways are always the best, although they're just sometimes mysterious and difficult to comprehend. I think we would all agree that the future does not always come together as we think it will, or worse, if we think it should. Inflexibility says that we believe we are the master of our own lives and the plans of our own lives. But flexibility says, I've got open hands to you, Lord. I have some ideas here. I'm going to start running with it. And if you want to change it up, do it. You're the one. You're the boss. I believe you help me help develop this vision in me. But if you want to make changes and revisions, I'm good. If you want to completely shoot a two-pointer from across the room into the trash bin on my plans, that's fine too. That's flexibility. God's plans for us change, and sometimes in an instance, don't they? Hmm. You're moving along, and... You're doing what you believe you're supposed to be doing, and then all of a sudden that takes a right turn and completely you completely leave that whole direction. 
You see, what we have to do is we have to learn to qualify our intentions as James advises. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that, James 4.15. That's the right attitude. That's flexibility. I think Paul was charged because of statements like this, and, and sometimes Paul had vision and plans to do something but couldn't do it because God changed his plans. The Corinthians later on or at some point charged him with being fickle and indecisive. And that's not fair. Later they accused him of being fickle. 2 Corinthians 1, 16 to 17. Paul wasn't indecisive. He wasn't fickle. He wasn't half-hearted. He was committed as anyone could be. He was realistic. He was humble. He was realistic because he knew that no one can be captain of his own fate and master of his own destiny, William Henley. He was humble because he understood that God is sovereign and God has the power and right to change any person's plans whenever and however he chooses. You have to have, you have, to have vision, but you have to understand that and be flexible. And some of us are so, we're more married to our vision and to our plans than we are to flexibility and trusting God if he wants to change those things. And then this, this is equivalent to a bomb blast for some people when the plans change. Uh, J. Mac again, I'm just quoting him left and right because he's just, he's, just, he's just good at this. He says, we are not only, we are not always, pardon me, we are not always able to go where we want to go or to do what we want to do, no matter how sincere, selfless, and spiritual our motives may be. The apostles were no exception to this. That's a statement of fact. We, 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 we have vision and we want to do things, but we, we can't always do them. We can't always carry them out. You know? It's going to sound nuts, but when... When I believe God was forming vision in me as a redheaded stepchild junior high pastor, like, what is that? That's how, that's how you feel when you're a junior high pastor at a church of 4,000. You're like, somebody bring in the shimp. I was the, you know, out of the way, Peck. I mean, that's what I was. And, but I, God was developing in me this sincere desire to plant a church. And that came with a lot of trepidation and fear because it's like, oh, my goodness. When I started to share that vision with some people, they said, you're nuts, dude. You, you don't, you're going to lose your income, your benefits. Your kids aren't going to be able to go to school here. You're going to be broke as a joke. I'm like, I'm already broke as a joke. I'm a junior high pastor. <laughs> they're, not, they're not at the top of the pay scale. They're like, give him enough so he can breathe. You know, but it just, that's dangerous. I, I don't think I would do that. And I'm like, well, I mean, sometimes there's a lot of risk that comes with vision. And, and, and if vision is the, the product of faith, then I need to act and live in faith and trust that God will carry out what I believe he's, he's told me to do. And I don't think this is a difficult vision to come up with because all you got to do is read Matthew 28 and it says, go into the world and make disciples. The only way that I know that disciples are made are through churches. So to me, that's less of a call to go out and you know, just do evangelism. It's a call to go out and plant churches because churches make disciples. And so that's how I saw it. I believe God gave me that 
revealed that to me through his word and was calling me to move in faith and to do that. And there was some vision behind that, but there was also trepidation and fear. And I had to be flexible because what if I started to work toward that and then it just didn't work out? Or what if we planted this church and after a couple of years, God chose to close it down? I couldn't hang on to this thing and say, I'm going to do everything I can to keep it open. <laughs> right? Oh, I'll show you. Yeah. Flexibility. I had to be flexible even as I was pondering this church. I doubt any servant of Christ has ever understood the principle of flexibility better than Paul and maybe Barnabas since that was his traveling companion at the time. During his second missionary journey, they planned to, to visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are, Acts 15, 36. What is, what is that statement? That is a statement of vision. I believe... The Lord is going to direct us and lead us and give us success in doing this. And they wanted to go back through churches. They had planted to check in on them and see how they're doing in a particular area. And they were able to visit most of the places as planned, but the Holy Spirit specifically forbade them to, quote, speak the word in Asia, end quote, and ended their attempts to enter, quote, Bithynia, end quote, Acts 16, 6-7. Do you have a clear example of Paul who was the man of vision and is laying out a plan to visit some of these churches and then when he gets to some of these places and he's about to step over the border the Holy Spirit's like you're not going up there now what would happen if Paul wasn't flexible in fact, I think the text demonstrates that he wasn't as flexible as he should have been up front because it seems like he, he and Barnabas made several attempts to go into Bithynia. <laughs> but every time they did it, it was like, God shut the door. The text makes it sound like the spirit had to stop them. <laughs> We're going to go get the battering ram, right? Ah, they didn't go flexibility our vision our plans they're both wrought and or wrecked by the Holy Spirit <laughs> they're made by him and they're stopped by him without the spirit we can do really nothing good nothing godly we need the spirit daily to do anything positive for Christ we need the spirit for vision. We need the spirit for planning. We need the spirit for the execution of these things. We need the spirit to stop us from going any further if it's not what the Lord wants. What did the true vine, Jesus Christ, say to the branches? Apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 1 to 5. You know, we're so strong-willed at times and get these ideas about things we want to do. And one of the things pastors get charged with pretty regularly is never taking a break to rest. They just keep preaching and doing all this ministry, and then they get burned out, and they end up in sin, and they're out of ministry. Psalm 23 says, he makes me lie in green pastures. Sometimes God 
has to say enough vision and planning and service for a while and you need to stop what you're doing and it's the holy spirit that stops us and lets us take a time a respite and time to to replenish you ever felt like that look look Inflexibility might not be easy, but it's necessary. And if we're not flexible, we're going to fight. We're going to find ourselves fighting against the Spirit of God. And last time I checked, nobody wins but the Spirit of God. We can't do anything apart from Him. I think we should be thankful for the Spirit's role and work in our vision and plans, even if He chooses to destroy them. Ha <laughs> ha. The only way you're going to be okay with that is if you're flexible. You're just dead set on doing what you want, and you believe God opened all the doors, and he would never short shut a door to you because you're his most precious saint. You're going to get crushed when things don't work the way you think they should. I've had way too many encounters and relationships with saints who do this in the church, even in this one. We should thank him when he brings something to ruin because we know that he'll bring something better. God always has his and our best interests in mind. Always. And if we have a plan that, that needs to be changed, it's for our best. He works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28. Flexibility is key because it allows us to move with God as he moves. You understand? Should I repeat that? Because that's probably the best thing you can hear according to the principle of flexibility. Flexibility is key because it allows us to move with God as he moves. Amen? inflexibility pits us against his sovereignty, pits us against his omnipotent power, which is always a losing battle for us. The end result of inflexibility will be bitterness and blame. I know. I've experienced it. Not everything I've ever envisioned and planned to do has come to pass. God's probably demolished more of my vision and plans than has allowed them. And I have come to learn that that is for my good. Because it is thoroughly possible for you and I to be spiritual people in Christ, to have the Holy Spirit, and to come up with things he does not want us to do. They may not be bad things. Don't think that, well, you know, he ruined my plans to go to the bar and get hammered. It's not something he wants you to do. And praise him for ruining that plan. Most of the time, we're coming up with things that, that aren't, necessarily or inherently evil or wicked like which college to go to or something like that unless you want to go to berkeley probably not a good idea but or maybe half the seminaries but it, it, it's not that we're sitting here envisioning and planning evil nasty ugly dirty things things that god would be you know explicitly opposed to in the scripture it's rarely that it's something that could be good and could help people but God says God shows us that it's not the direction he wants us to go in and so you have to be flexible and, and say okay show, show me something else right 
Let's move to the third and final principle for today. We have communion in a little bit, so you know I didn't want to go real long here, but we'll have three more next week, Lord willing. The third one is the principle of thoroughness, verses 7 to 8. This is a, this is a good one. Paul says it like this in 7 and 8. He says, For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend more time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Stop there. Paul demonstrates the principle of thoroughness by how he planned to what? Spend some time with the Corinthians rather than merely passing through. When Paul was to go back to Corinth. He wasn't going there just to pick up the collection, the Corinthians portion of the collection. He wanted to go and do that and then possibly accompany the spiritual leaders that they appointed to help take that offering to Jerusalem. He wanted to do that, but he says, I don't want to just come there and pick it up. I want to come there and spend some time with you. And that shows that he was thorough in ministry. I mean, this is a church of great needs, is it not? We've studied the epistle. It's incredible. This is not a church that needed a five-minute visit from this guy. Come, eat, and leave like some of our relatives during the holidays. This is a church that needed Paul to install himself as their pastor and never leave. Superficiality and temporariness, they had no, these things had no part in Paul's ministry, anywhere. You read his epistles, you read in Acts. This, you could never charge this guy with you know, just being in it for the minute. Paul wanted everything he did to be sound and to be permanent, to be worthwhile, to be lasting. He understood that the Great Commission cannot be fulfilled with anything less than thoroughness. Of all the great men and women of God who've lived throughout all the ages, this guy might be one of the ones that got this best, as he did with the other principles. Evangelism, making disciples of all nations, that's, that's only the beginning. To go on and teach new converts to observe all that Christ commanded, Matthew 28, 19 to 20, is a long and demanding process cannot be done quickly. It cannot be done carelessly. It cannot be done superficially. You've got to devote yourself to the Word and to the ministry of the Word and to the people of God and teach them the Word and admonish them in the Word and exhort them in the Word and encourage them in the Word and bless them with the Word. Direct them with the Word. That takes time. And this is, this is not by any means Big Valley's fault when I say this. Big Valley's a wonderful church. It was when I was there. It wasn't because I was there. I got written up several times, so yeah. The bonehead, the redheaded stepchild. Well, we got to do something to get him in line. You know, let's give him a write-up. And I'm like, this is a Christian write-up. It's good. Not Big Valley's fault at all, but the place was so big when I was there and so fast moving and going from one thing to the next, it developed in me a perspective of speed. Everything God does is big, bombastic, and fast. And then I leave with a handful of people. The Lord 
gives us the vision, the plan, and the means to do it, and we leave and plant a church with everyone, and it's like God hits the brakes. <laughs> and then I, I realize, I start to realize over time that the, if the gospel has cogs like in machinery, they spin pretty slow. They're not, ah! Speed never brings about the best results. Slow and steady does. And so when you're in a big place like that, everything's happening and everything's going on and it's, it's mind-blowing and there, there's, there's twirling lights and, whoa, we're reaching the city and, you know, and all this. And, and this, is, this was my mentality. And I, I found that often because I was moving so quickly with the ministry that the ministry that I was leading at times was very shallow because I don't know how you can maintain any kind of depth any kind of thoroughness when you're moving from one thing to the next so quickly. It's not Big Valley's fault. It's the way it is. It's a very evangelistic church trying to get people in to get them to hear the gospel so they can be saved. The intention is, is good, but it, it can develop in you a mindset. And when I came here, I'm like, this isn't moving fast enough for me. Why don't we have 10,000 people by now? The Lord's all, I gave you 10. Focus on them. No, I want 10,000. I can barely manage my own life. How am I going to minister to 10,000 people? God is far more realistic than me. His vision for me is just you go in and you do this and you don't worry about the width and the, and, and, and the breadth. I'll, you know, you focus on the depth and I'll deal with the width and the breadth of it and I'll, I'll grow it according to my speed and time, but don't forsake any vision or thinking through things about the future, but I'll take care of all that. You just focus on being faithful to the word. And that's what I've sought to do. And have I done it perfectly? No. The, the great struggle for me is not ministering the word and preaching the word. That's not really a struggle. I think God wired me to be that way before I even knew I was going to be a Christian because I had the gift of gab and communication skills and all that. I, that's not a problem. The challenge for me is living it out myself. I've been told so many times by people who've come through this church, you, you don't even live what you preach. And I'm like, I know. And I hate that about me. Sometimes I do it okay. But it's a challenge. It's a challenge. And the scary thing about that is I know I'll be judged more critically for it. So I think I and the elders have always wanted to be as thorough as we could be here with the scripture. Uh, there, there's, there's, you know, a thousand churches you could go to where they have much more depth. Uh, and I do the best I can. I'm just one man wired a certain way and I do what I can. But there's more depth out there. There's also more shallowness out there. But the point is that we want to be faithful and we want to be thorough. We want to take the time to minister God's word because we understand that the power of God is in the word. And the more we put the word in front of the people of God, the more his power will be unleashed in their lives, hopefully. Thoroughness is huge. It's massive. 
Anyone can go out and visit a community and preach the gospel and get a bunch of people to respond then leave town and go somewhere else. That's not the challenge. That's an easy thing to do. For crying out loud, I could probably do that. But making the disciples and teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded, that takes a lifetime. That's the challenge. And then dealing with all the dynamics and the hurts and the hang-ups and the attitudes and the the different behaviors and the personalities. And you do this and you start to find that, man, Lord, you really have wired me to be so vastly different from so many people that I minister to. Change them or change me so I can figure it out because this is like oil and water. Mm. It's crazy. Nothing that is good can be done quickly and carelessly and superficially. And sadly, and this isn't, you know, when I say these things, I say things all the time, and it's never with malice, it's not with anger, but it saddens me that churches have given themselves over to superficiality. They're not worried about being thorough. They're not concerned about being thorough. They're concerned with being only effective, and they believe that if they use the carnal means of the culture, that'll make them effective because the culture is very effective in gaining followers. This is not something we should do. That's not thoroughness. Paul demonstrates the thoroughness through how he planned to spend time with them rather than just passing through. He also demonstrated the principle of thoroughness by how he decided to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. See it there in verse 8? Why did you do that? Because a wide door for effective work had been opened. That's in verse 9a, the very next verse. Paul's saying, I, I can't come to you until I have done all that the Lord wants me to do here in Ephesus. What is that? Thoroughness. You cannot charge Paul ever with starting something and not finishing it. Bare minimum, you'll see him start something that the Lord directs him to start, and then he'll pass it to someone else who can carry the torch. Great, but he doesn't leave something undone. He's not like me as a nine-year-old boy with the VCR when I decided to take it apart to fix a button. It never went back together. All of that for a button. And my mom's like, what did you do to the VCR? Remember, back in the 80s, a VCR was $9 million. <laughs> you destroyed the VCR. We, we all have a pattern of not finishing things that we start. If you're thorough, you will. Paul did this remarkably. He would... I've got, there's stuff's happening over here. God, the Spirit is moving here in Ephesus. I'm, I'm going to stay here until the Pentecost feast. Then I'm going to travel from that point. I've got to stay here and work. There's an effective work to be done here. And if you look at verse 9 in the B section of that verse, he says, and there's a lot of opposition. I mean, because wherever the Spirit of God is moving, there's going to be a lot of opposition. The, the devil's going to try to counter it and bring opposition. And Paul's saying, I'm not leaving until this stuff is settled, or at least till I can pass it off to some other faithful servant. But I'm not going to just jump ship here while God is moving because I have a vision to come to you. I'm going to finish what I started, and then I'll come to you. That's thoroughness. He was committed to the task at hand and thoroughly engaged in bringing it to completion in the Lord's timing and strength. 
Toward the end of his ministry and life, he told Timothy, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, 2 Timothy 4, 7. Don't think for one moment he's only referring to his own life and to keeping the faith, and that's the whole race. I know he talks about in this epistle how faith is a race and you run the race. He's not only referring to that. He literally believed when he says this to Timothy, it has to do with living his life for Christ. It has to do with keeping the faith. It has to do with all of this. But he also believes that he had done everything that Jesus had told him to do. Acts 9, 16. You see that a little bit when somebody is saying about Paul, Ananias is saying about Paul, that the Lord will show him how much this, I'm going to show that man, talking about Saul who became Paul, I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for me. In other words, I'm going to have him do all my work, and he'll suffer for it, because if you do the Lord's work, you'll suffer in this culture, in his culture. But it really has to do with, I'm going to have him do everything I want him to do, and then that's it. And so when he's writing to Timothy here, his... He is expressing by saying, I've run the race, it's done, it's over, I've done everything. I'm He's saying his ministry is complete. Therefore, his life was complete. Because for Paul, ministry wasn't something he did. Ministry is who he was. Once his ministry was completed, he had done all that the Lord wanted him to do, suffered in all the various capacities, took the gospel all over, planted all these churches, everything the Lord had him do. Once it was over, he considered his life to be over because ministry for him was life, not just, you know. Paul never saw church as something he did on Sunday. That's who he is. He's telling Timothy, I've, I've done everything I was commanded to do. Therefore, my ministry is complete. My life is complete. It's now time for me to go and be with the Lord. That statement in Timothy is a statement of thoroughness. I have thoroughly done everything I'm supposed to do, and now it's over. He knew it was over. If we want to be effective in Christian service, we must focus on being thorough like Paul. Better yet, we must focus on being thorough like Jesus. What if on the cross he just decided to stop everything and call down those angels and destroy the Romans and everyone else and then live his best life now? No, he thoroughly completed his ministry. In fact, on the cross, right before he breathes his last breath, he says, it is finished. And take himself down. I remember when I was in junior high, we had a <laughs> junior high ministry, not me in junior high. I don't remember back that far. We had some kind of assignment during our, our E classes where kids were to draw a picture of Jesus on the cross and all that. And one of these kids... <laughs> And they submitted them, and some of us leaders would look at these pictures, and, you know, we would kind of judge them and give the kid a reward for it, you know. And, you know, these are junior high kids. The drawings weren't, you know, they were more Picasso than accurate, right? It's like there's six crosses right here and 19 Jesuses. That's a Matisse, you know. And one kid draw, drew Jesus on the cross with an Uzi. And he was shooting everybody that was looking at him. And I was like, did, did, your, did you eat paint chips as a baby? I mean, it's the idea. It was actually a fascinating picture. I'm like, he could have done it, you know. But he was certainly tempted to give up. But he was thorough. He didn't whip out an Uzi and spray his adversaries. 
He died a bloody, horrendous, sin-atoning, sin-payment-settling death on the cross for all who would believe. It is finished. And not only that, he goes into a tomb, and then he rises, and the thoroughness of his atonement is made. Jesus is the better example of thoroughness, but Paul is pretty darn good. It's not wrong for believers to desire to do great things for our great God, but it is entirely wrong for them to forsake, I say, the here and now, because sometimes what we do is we can get so wrapped up in vision that we're not focused and concentrating on what we're doing now. Does this happen? You got a vision for something and you're planning for it while neglecting the here and now. J-Mac said something just brilliant to this. And this is like the last thing from him. He says, only the Christian who is doing his present work for the Lord thoroughly and faithfully can expect his ministry to grow and be extended even into the kingdom of our Lord. The scope of eternal service to God in heaven will be determined by the strength and dedication of service rendered here and now. As the parable of the talents teaches, Matthew 25, 14 to 30. He says, we should not expect the Lord to open doors of greater ministry if we have not entered the doors he has already opened for us. What's the point? Doesn't matter how much vision you have or how much plans you have, do not neglect the here and now. Do your very best as a steward of God in the here and now. And then and only then, can you maybe prayerfully expect God to open new doors and to work through the vision that you've developed in the spirit? Master what you're doing now. It's not wrong for us to desire to do great things, but don't forget about the here and now. Keep in mind, we're not going to be rewarded for our vision. Okay? You can have a lot of vision and never actually get to it and do it, and you're going to stand before the Lord. And I'll tell you what, you had some great ideas, Phil. Welcome in. Here's a crown doesn't work that way. We will be rewarded for what we actually do for Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 14. You can have all the vision in the world, but if you don't do anything, don't expect anything from him. A faithful servant does not begin with some huge opportunity, but with doing the best possible work for the Lord in the routine things. May your vision include what you're doing now. May your thoroughness be focused on what you do now. If we do not give God our best where we are, there is no assurance we will, uh, that uh, we're going to give him our best anywhere else. If you can't do it now, how, how are you going to do that later? Well, I'll, I'll become that super servant, Lord, when you open this door. But until then, I'll be the slothful servant. This is a stupid way to think. And some of us think like that sometimes. MacArthur says this, it's really good. He says, the opportunity we can be sure of having is the one we have now. What you're doing right now is God's plan for you right now. That should take a burden off of you because I think sometimes we get wrapped up in I got to be doing bigger things. I got to be doing greater things. And God says, maximize what you're doing now. Give me your bet now.
Therefore, we should invest our time, talent, and treasure not just in dreaming and planning or waiting for something bigger to come along, but in service to the Lord right now. We are commanded to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Hebrews, or not Hebrews, but Ephesians 5.16, right? Make the most of every opportunity. That's right now. Don't wait now. And we can seek the Spirit for fresh vision. We can use some of that around here. Amen? But we mustn't neglect the Christian service we are currently engaged in, building up the body of Christ. We've got to learn to do both, actively serve, faithfully, thoroughly, and dream about the future and plan for the future. And my prayer is for the Holy Spirit to give us some vision, and, or at least for 2024 and beyond, straight from God's word, while we are focused on being flexible and thorough in our ongoing service to Jesus Christ. Amen.